Hey y'all, welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. Today sort of kicks off a three episode extravaganza because we're focusing on a main character today. And then when we get into our brawl in the next two episodes, we'll pull more people into our BA story. Yes, you heard me right. The brawl is going to take two whole episodes this time instead of one. It's a huge topic to cover. And as we start to get into it, you'll see why we needed three episodes to cover the topic and the people and the brawl and the science because it's huge. It's a lot. It is. Let's deal with some weekly business before we get started. You might be wondering how to make sure that other people find us. The best way to do that is to rate, review, follow, like, subscribe, or whatever our podcast, wherever you listen. It's totally free, takes no time at all to tap that little button, and it helps other people know they want to be here listening. Do you have something we need to know or a suggestion for an episode or maybe an answer to a question or a homework assignment that we gave? Then you can email us at science at gmail.com or you can DM us on Facebook or Instagram. We're at BA and Science, both of those places. Finally, if you can't get enough of us, and who can? You can become a podcast. Our husbands. Our husbands definitely can get enough of us, yes. They can get enough of us. They probably have had way too much of us. They're both sick of us all the time, but that's fine. Yeah. They're married, so there's nothing they can do about it. True. I feel like they ought to spend more time commiserating about that, and I feel like they're missing an opportunity there, but True. you know, they've probably made their choices. So anyway, you can become a podcast supporter on Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com, search for BA in Science, and subscribe for just $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, plus our entire catalog of bonus content, including special episodes that we release during the season and in the summer. And you can even like try it for a week for free, one week free trial to make sure that the content is actually awesome. Don't worry, it is. So that's an option too. Okay, so do we have any addendums from our last episode before we get started this week? I think mom guessed it, right? Mom did guess it. Yeah. So yep. shout out, mom. Yay. Good job, mom. Yeah. Uh, but but that's all I think I have. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't think, like, we haven't had addendums lately. Or, like, are we just, are we ignoring your messages? Or are we doing a better job of our research? I don't know. Maybe the people aren't as interesting and you don't have questions. I don't know what it is. But, like, if you've got something to tell us about, then tell us about it. And we'll mention huh. it here. That's all I'm saying. All right, well, let's take a break then, and we will get right into it. Friends, I've got a fun bio for y'all this week, which will sort of introduce not just our BA, but the topic we're going to be dealing with for the next few weeks, because we're roping our brawl into this whole extravaganza. So before I get started on the bio, Bruno, what's our quote, and who are we talking about this week? The results suggest a helical structure, which must be very closely packed, containing two, three, or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per helical unit and having the phosphate groups near the outside. Those are electronotes of Rosalind Franklin, RBA, for the week. Amazing. So what you're saying is Rosalind suspected there is a helical structure involved in the science she worked in is that what you're saying Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That's going to be really important. Everyone put that in your satchel for the next like three weeks. Okay. Except for, I think you and I have different views about how all of that happened. So this is going to be an interesting few weeks. It It is a little contentious. It might, there might be some contention. I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited in general to talk about Rosalind. She was an interesting person. And after reading a lot of her personal correspondence, I actually really liked her as a person, which doesn't matter to the way we cover people, but it's always nice to like someone you have to talk about for like 30 plus minutes. For sure. Okay, so Rosalind Franklin was born on July 25th, 1920 in Notting Hill in London. Her family was among the group of assimilated Jews who had come to England before the Napoleonic Wars. So Roz was not an immigrant, nor was she the first generation of her family born in England. Like, in contrast, you've got the Russian Jews that were escaping the pogroms. Oh, yeah. Okay, so those Jews ended up in the East End, where poverty was kind of the norm. Roz's family was very rich and influential. Her great uncle Mm. was the first high commissioner of Palestine in Jerusalem. Mm. Yeah. And another of her antecedents was Lord Mayor of London. Wow, I didn't know that. One of her aunties was a suffragette. So, you know, it's a pretty bougie family. Okay. Her dad was Ellis Franklin. He was a banker and he also taught at Working Men's College, which is today Europe's oldest existing adult education center, which is awesome. For Americans, think like if a trade school and a community college had a baby. That's what Working Men's College is. So Ellis taught electricity, magnetism, and the history of the Great War in the evenings. Those make sense. Those Those three topics together. Uh, He even became vice principal at one point. Oh. Yes. Now, Roz's mom was Muriel Francis Whaley. She wasn't allowed to go to college per her parents' decree, but she was very intelligent and a good writer. She and Ellis had five children, of whom Roz was the second. And Roz was the only girl until Jennifer, the youngest, came along. Her parents did a variety of BA things themselves, but one of my favorites was that they helped Jewish refugees who were fleeing Nazi Germany. Oh. Yeah, the entire Franklin clan was given to charitable work. And after the Anschluss, which is the annexation of Austria by Germany, Mm -hmm. they set up an organization to help find homes for children displaced by that. And they even took two of them into their own home. So yeah, they were pretty serious about it. So in a family of five siblings, three of them brothers, it is no surprise that Roz was different from the others. She spoke softly, was often quietly observant, was very perceptive. Howard Markle, uh, the author of The Secret of Life, one of my sources, said, quote, overly sensitive, especially if she felt slighted or wronged, her response as a youngster was to retreat and ruminate. And I'm going to tell you right now that she did a version of that when she was older, too, which we'll kind of get to later, but this was kind of a personality trait of hers. Muriel, her mom, likened her to a sea anemone. Like when something disturbed her, she would just curl up into herself, kind of keeping her hurts inside. Which when when Muriel explained what she meant, like I was like, okay, that's fair. That that was fine. But otherwise, it's like, I don't know if I'd want to be described as a sea anemone. They're kind of poisonous. But anyway. Whose mom described her as like thick or pudgy or sturdy? Oh, Ada Ada Loveless. Didn't her mom say she was sturdy? Or substantial or something. I don't know. I don't know yeah. if I'd rather be a sea anemone or... A, definitely a sea anemone. Definitely. Okay. That. Yeah. So Roz was also alarmingly clever, according to her dad's sister, Mamie. 
alarmingly like is that a quote that is a quote the quote Mm. is alarmingly clever according to her dad's sister mamie Roz liked to spend free time doing arithmetic and haul her answers were always right, which I'm a mathematician and I don't like to spend my free time doing arithmetic, but whatever. Yeah, that sounds lame. You do you. Unfortunately, in Roz's family, marked intelligence in the females wasn't exactly a reason to rejoice because women in that time and in that family weren't really encouraged to get a good education or go to work or any of that. Like Roz's own father wouldn't hire women to work at his bank. Oh. Yeah. But Roz was the brightest of all the children, probably in part because she went to good schools, which was fine. But being super smart and wanting higher education and a career wasn't quite as fine. So Mm -hmm. like, okay, sure. When Roz was six, she started her schooling at Norland Place School. It was and still is a private day school in London, still exists today. The boys and girls were in the same classes until they were 11 or so, which was a little bit unusual at the time. Now, after the boys turned 11, they went somewhere else, but the girls could stay and get more education. So Roz would have learned literature, arithmetic, and history as the core subjects, and then she could also play sports. Yes, girls could play cricket and hockey, which Roz was totally into. But she was only there for three years because when she was nine, her mom was pregnant again, and that was going to be with her youngest sister. So that meant boarding school for Roz. Oh. One of my sources indicated that Roz's health was, quote, delicate, because evidently she'd had several rounds of illness as a child that required like lots of rest to recover from. Mm. Um, But side note, later in life, she completely rejected that idea. Like she was, I was never delicate and she kind of resented being sent away. So, you know, there's that. Uh, But that belief, the belief that she was delicate may have been behind the decision as to which boarding school Elisa Muriel picked. Oh. They sent her to Lindor's School for Young Ladies in Sussex. And I might've pronounced that wrong, but I did my best. Um, It's very near the seaside. So clearly the sea air and climate would be better than the miasma Ah. of London, right? All of us want someone to look at us and say, wow, I think some time at the seaside would really do your mental health well. Why, yes, it would. I would love to go. So Roz sort of bloomed when she was there. She got to study geometry, geography, and Elizabethan poetry. And she also Mm. continued to play sports, do handiworks like sewing, which she really enjoyed. And she got to do science, which was her personal favorite. She was homesick, though, and would have liked to be around to watch her little sister grow up. So after two years there, they moved her to St. Paul's Girls School in Hammersmith. Hmm, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar because that's where our BA of last week, episode two, CC went. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a huge deal. So before I talk about how her time at St. Paul's went, I want to talk a little bit about Roz's personality. So Roz was a gifted child and that carries with it certain personality traits, which appear to varying degrees in all gifted kids. So she, like so many other brilliant people, assumed mistakenly that everybody was as smart and quick as she was and when they invariably showed themselves to be not as smart and quick wow did she have no patience for that (laughs) she would quickly become exasperated when everyone around her failed to work as methodically and competently as she did and like girl same I'm not brilliant but I was a gifted child and I I kind of did have to learn to work through these things her mom described her as quote devastatingly blunt But that was when she was a teenager, 
and lots of teenagers can be that way. So that's somewhat I mean, kids in general, like, yeah, I mean, kids can walk downstairs and my four-year-old be like, wow, mom, you look like a boy. I mean, and great, like, what does that you. even mean? I don't even thank know. Like, but, but clearly it was a burn. But why though? I, I mean, kids. Are oh, mean. well, in her case, it's because I wore pants. Oh, is this the youngest <laughs> who only wears dresses? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. That's if I make her pants. I don't want to look like a boy. Anyway. Okay. Which cracks me up because you wear literally all different kinds of clothes. But anyway. I know. So Roz had no problem expressing her dislike of other people, which is not always rad. But if she liked you, she loved you. And she was very loyal. She was funny. She was an enjoyable companion. Her mom summed it up with this quote. Rosalind's hates, as well as her friendships, tended to be enduring. So it feels like, you know, is this a situation where she's like Darcy, where once mm. his good opinion is lost, it's lost forever? Is that is that Roz? Except it's not. I mean, in the end, it really wasn't true for Darcy. But no, okay. he was totally wrong. He he didn't know. He didn't know who he was. He had a lot of growing to do, and he didn't. Anyway, as much as I would. Maybe we'll start a Pride and Prejudice podcast at some point, but anyway. So for a girl like Roz, how would St. Paul's be? Turns out it was awesome. St. Paul's taught lots of science courses. Unlike many schools of the time, it was equipped with fancy labs and it had a biology teacher, a chemistry teacher, a physics teacher. She had four years there, which was like the U.S. equivalent of middle school. And then she was in what's called sixth form, which so think high school. Uh, when you're in sixth form, you get to choose which course of study to focus on. And she wanted the math and science focus. Mm -hmm. So in addition to Latin, German, and French and those kinds of classes, she took chemistry, physics, and math. She didn't do botany or biology because that was for people who wanted to be doctors. And she very much did not want to be a doctor. I do Fair want enough. to point out that science and math were taught differently to boys and girls at this time. So for girls, the focus was on neatness thoroughness and repetition she wasn't encouraged in any way to be bold and daring or to ask exciting questions or ask interesting questions i mean she of course did awesome academically but math was different for girls in terms of extracurriculars she was still into sports and even took on debate she was not good at music though if you'll recall our pal gussie holst gustav holst was still the school music director when she hmm. was there and she was apparently bad enough at singing unlike Cece that Holst called Muriel to ask if Roz had suffered from hearing loss oh jeez so sick burn that yes this speaking of mean like wow so personally she had ups and downs like one time Roz and her friend Margaret had had a fight and so Roz got a new bestie named Jean and she and Jean were being mean to Margaret so much so that the administration called Roz's parents and told her that Roz was bullying Margaret. Oh boy. Yeah so she had like a mean girl streak when she was younger. Hmm. And older? Maybe. Hmm. I'm not saying she wasn't. Okay. Her parents were worried that the hostile indifference that Rod would occasionally demonstrate in class, and hostile indifference, first of all, that's a great band name, so there's that, uh, but this hostile indifference that she would demonstrate would be a lifelong thing. 
Uh, turns out it was mostly just being a teenager. Everything I read mm -hmm. about her can kind of be summed up that she was a standard issue gifted girl and oldest daughter in the family, mm -hmm. a type which I recognize very well. In the fall of 1938, Roz started at Cambridge. Well, okay, not Cambridge, Newnham College at Cambridge because girls didn't go to school where boys did, as we discussed with Cece. And so don't get in a canoe. And don't you absolutely cannot go canoeing with anyone who's not your brother or your fiance, period, because <laughs> of reasons. So Roz actually got in a year earlier than most did, making her younger than everybody there. And lots was going on in the world at this time, notably the Anschluss in the beginning of World War II. Again, as we discussed with Cece, women didn't really get degrees when they finished school. There were only about 500 women even admitted next to the 5,000 men that were being admitted to school, which you would think would be good for girls who wanted to catch a husband, but Roz mm -hmm. was not one of those. Now, she was pretty with, she had this lovely dark hair, dark eyes. She played tennis and squash and bicycled for miles, so she was super fit. Uh, plus, she was brilliant, so I consider her a catch, but she had no wish to be caught. I mean, you also would have had to scale the glass encruster walls to sneak in to, to like hang out yeah. with her after curfew. So, I mean, right. that would maybe be a deterrent. I mean, I mean, uh, reinforcing the wish to not be married were some of the very cosmopolitan women scientists that Roz was able to interact with as part of her studies, Adrian Weil, for instance. Adrian had worked with Marie Curie in France, and Roz went to Adrian's lecture about her time with Marie Curie. And Roz even met Adrian, which is going to be important later, so keep that in your satchel. Okay. So something that Roz dabbled in while she was there was x-ray crystallography, but I'm going to leave that for Brenna to pick up later because that's more of her science stuff. Something that you should also bear in mind is that near Cambridge, there is a Royal Air Force Station, which means Cambridge saw a lot of bombing during World War II, which was now in full swing when during this time of Ross's life, which I never thought about. Like, of course, Cambridge would have. Isn't there a rumor or didn't we talk about there is like a rumor or maybe it's in the movie where like, um, remember Ramanujan, the mathematician, he mm -hmm. was at Cambridge during the war and he, like supposedly he was like caught up in an air raid. Well, yeah, so that's that and that's actually likely because like because there were a lot of air raids. And so like you would think with all of them that Roz wouldn't have time to communicate with her family. But Roz, being a good daughter, wrote to her parents all the time about all kinds of things, including air raids. Like it was. A thing. I feel like maybe she could have left those out. Dear mom and dad, school is great. Also, I almost died in the air raid. Hugs and kisses. Roz. Yes, send cookies. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I just would have left it out of the letter as well. But she, you know, it was in there. Now, she did especially like to tease her more conservative father with socialist or liberal viewpoints, which is kind of a phase that college, some college students go through, which is, you know, they, they had what I would call a typical father-daughter relationship. Uh, not everyone would characterize it as such. The main male figure in a young woman's life and her relationship with him can have a major effect on her relationships with men as she becomes more independent. That's something that we see in psychology and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Some authors have portrayed Raza's relationship with her dad as, quote, fraught and tension-filled. Hmm. But Muriel, her mom, disputed that claim. She said that her husband and her daughter had a good relationship and that he always supported Raza's career choices. Now, she's just, you know, writing history the way she wants it to look. But all right. 
well, I don't know. I mean, Roz did get annoyed with him. What like really annoyed when he told her to quit school and help more with the war effort by taking a government job and rolling bandages. Mm. Yeah. And she was pretty insulted by that. But at the same time, Roz always discussed her work most seriously with her father. So if she was talking to anybody about it seriously, it was her dad. So as I said, it feels like a fairly typical and healthy father-daughter relationship, but there was some perceived tension in this relationship, which will be important when some men in her field try to make trouble for her, which we're going to be discussing in a few episodes. Okay. Okay. Back to Raza's schooling. At the end of three undergrad years, she was to take an exam, and if she got a first, which is like the highest grade, she'd be able mm-hmm. to go on and do postgrad work. But she had a horrible cold the week of exams and took some cold medicine so she could like function. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the cold medicine did to her what it does to most of us and dulled her mind. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when you take cold medicine and you're just kind of foggy, like you can function, but you're not giving it 100%. Mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened. So she did fine on the test questions that she answered, mm-hmm. but she misjudged the time and didn't finish. Oh, So she got a second, which means she shouldn't have been able to move on, but her undergrad advisor wrote a letter of recommendation and considering her track record, the school's like, no, no, you're fine. So she was able to obtain- I mean, they grad- weren't giving her degrees anyway. Uh, like, I know, well, no skin off their noses, like, stop it. <laughs> so she was able to obtain a graduate research scholarship to study physical chemistry under a guy named Norrish who ended up winning a Nobel Prize in the 60s so he's probably a good PhD advisor right Roz will be working toward a doctorate in physical chemistry but turns out he was not a good advisor at all Hmm. his biographer described him as quote ill at ease with himself, irascible, and drinking too much. Not the qualities mm. that would endear him to Rosalind Franklin. Or literally anyone? <laughs> or kind of anyone, because I don't feel particularly warm toward this man, and I never met him. So in her first year of work, things did not go well for Ross. She was only 21, and a woman, and only in her fourth year. Oh, and it was wartime. So apparently all of that gives Norrish the right to treat her as a pest to be dismissed and disrespected. Great. Norrish tended to be all over the place with his work, which led to moments of brilliance, but mostly led to him being wrong about, like, everything. Roz, on the other hand, was methodical and was known to become totally absorbed in her work to the exclusion of anything else. Plus, Norrish made her work on the polymerization of formic acid and acetaldehyde, which Norrish and some other guy had already published on, like, years ago. It was a crap assignment. And one that she had to complete while she was working in a small, dark office that was basically the size of a closet. So, yeah, so awesome. And Roz, who was claustrophobic, knew that for oh so many reasons, this was not a good research situation. Roz knew of Norrish's bad reputation before beginning her work and everything he did reinforced it. Like once she caught a mistake in his work and when she told him about it, he flipped out. So they had like a knockdown drag out fight about it. Oops. Yeah. And Ross wasn't bothered saying, quote, he has made me despise him so completely that I shall be impervious to anything he may say to me in the future. He simply gave me an immense feeling of superiority in his presence. And I, I, I can't even be mad about it because I've had interactions Thoughts with fire with, I've had interactions with men like that though, where I just dislike you so much that I don't care what you say because I'm just better than you. Like I understand that sentiment. We've all We've all come into contact with those people before. So he was verbally abusive 
He was a pig-headed drunk, and Roz was stuck with him, being in control of her stipend and her position in the program, not to mention her degree and any networking opportunities. Super. Yeah, but Roz never could abide fools. And something else she couldn't abide was not helping out with the war effort. She and Norrish had several confrontations about Roz wanting war work and Norrish not giving her any. Hmm. But then in 1942... Was he a commie? I, I think he was just a jerk. Because then in 1942, the British government ordered all women research assistants like Roz to be de-reserved, which means Roz had to quit Cambridge and go work for the war. And she didn't object to the whole thing per se, but she really objected to the fact that men weren't required to quit their work, Hmm. which, yeah, like I understand that would be annoying. But she left left Norrish and went to work for the British Coal Utilization Research Association as a physical chemist. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say anything more about that Mm -hmm. right now because Brenda's going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But her work here was good enough and there was enough of it that she basically earned a doctorate in physical chemistry because of it from Cambridge in 1945 at the conclusion of the war. She was ready to get a job, but she could have an adventure or two now that the war was over. So Raza, one of her friends, went to hike the French Alps in the summer of 1946. Mm -hmm. A source noted that the hiking excursion would was fine maybe included a minor fall or two but took so long that the hotel they were staying at almost sent out a search party for them but Rose was fine like she was fine and having adventured around the Alps she looked toward a job she loved France and was excited when an old old colleague had a good connection for her remember Adrian who I told you about before the woman who had worked with Marie Curie oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Ross was able to get a job with the government lab in Paris working for Jacques Miring who would be doing x-ray diffraction stuff with coal, and I'm not going to talk about that. But what I am going to talk about while she worked for this job is her personal life. She got along really well with everyone there. She was funny and charming and had, I mean, she lived in France. She had a fabulous sense of style, of course. Mm. She knew how to dress, and she dressed well. Uh, But Roz never got married, and she never really had a lot of boyfriends. She was, for most of her life, completely uninterested in being in any kind of relationship whatsoever and i say most because there's some tea there's a rumor that she did have at least one guy she could have seen herself marrying and that was jacques yeah her boss at this job Mm. in france Mm. one source called him a stereotypical frenchman and that he was charming and seductive and an all-around flirt Mm -hmm. i know and i guess he was really good looking too with these like high you know those high French cheekbones and he had these green like eyes. are we talking like Jacques Cousteau's son who was yes. a total babe that's yes. like what I'm picturing yes total babe like Jacques not Jacques guys no, his... let me clarify not Jacques Cousteau himself but his son, his son. What, was it Philippe yeah stone cold fox oh man so like that. Cute. tragically yeah. killed in an airplane accident if you didn't listen to that episode but oh He's man a, he, he was, was a babe he was a babe okay anyway okay sorry it's okay. So, but that's who we're thinking of here. Okay. Now, Jacques was really impressed with Roz from the beginning. She was the best student that he had had, and she loved to learn, and her mind was flexible and ingenious. Plus, he couldn't help but notice her hourglass figure, beautiful eyes, and the tendency she had to hang on literally his every word. Every man loves the uh, loves the attention. So, what's the problem? I mean, yeah, he's he's, he's her, her boss, boss, but also he was married. Oh, oh no and he kept a mistress oh no no yes, yes. Uh. 
he and his I know he and his wife live separately according to what I could find which doesn't make keeping a mistress okay but he's I mean sorry to our one French listener but (laughs) It's what the French, French do. I don't know. No, I don't know. It's the French don't care what they do as long as they pronounce it properly. And Roz was the complete. Wow, we are going in hard. I that's a quote from my fair lady. I didn't say well, that. I, I know that. Said that but, I'm just saying. But anyway, Roz was the complete opposite. She was almost puritanical in a lot of ways. But Roz's budding interest in Jacques, combined with living in Paris, brought her out of her shell and that she cared about her makeup and her hair along with her to clothes. The point where she'd be like, yeah, you know what? I could totally get with my married boss who already has a mistress. I mean, you know. But she was doing like, her but- makeup, which is the kind of thing that a woman does when she's got a man or is trying to get a man. Now, from what we know from the main players involved, Jacques and Roz had some sort of relationship that was more serious than anyone that Roz had ever had to this point. But in the end, since Jacques was married and had a serious mistress, Roz pulled back because she didn't really want to be casual about the whole thing. Jacques himself later admitted that there was something between them and he loved her very much. But Roz being so naive and inexperienced kind of made it so they just ended up friendly colleagues. I know. I kind of wanted to gag about that, but whatever. It sounds like she wanted to be more- Yeah, sure. Blame Roz. (laughs) That's why it didn't work out. Because maybe you're just a scum. Like, honestly, it sounded like she wanted to be more than just his lover, and he wasn't willing or able to be more than that. Mm. But evidently, when willing. Roz got- My guess, my money's on willing. <laughs> w- my guess is unwilling too. But when Roz got sick, which I'll get to in a minute, he, like, he wept. And, like, Aww. after she died, he burned all of his letters from her. So, yeah, like, it was this whole thing. Why? I don't know. Oh, she's gone, so let me destroy all the other things that I have. In my grief, I can't remember her without being sad. So here's all of her correspondence up in flames. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But there was one other man in her life that's notable. So we are going to get to him in a minute. Okay. Okay. So was he married? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, even better then. This one's a better choice. Okay. Okay. But so Ross works in France for about four years. And then she got a position at King's College under a guy named John Randall. There's some drama here, but I'm saving that for the brawl episode. So just trust me when I tell you that this transition to King's did not go smoothly and caused big problems later. I'll be skipping all of her time at King's College because, again, there's she's going to appear in our brawl and it's going to happen there. So I'm going to fast forward to 1953, where Ross had taken a new position at Birkbeck College. She traveled to America during this time, giving lectures on her work on coal, which Vern will tell us more about. She came to America not really liking Americans, because as an American, I can tell you, we have a terrible reputation. It is not necessarily deserved, but we have one. But she came, you know, through the heartland, and she found Mm. Americans to be hospitable, practical, charitable, and art-loving, which broadly is accurate of Americans. I would say that we can be all of those things. When she got to California, she went to none other than Linus Pauling's house for dinner. Aww. And I love when our BAs interact. It's my favorite thing. Like his ranch house out there where he like- Where he went off the side of the cliff cliff for a while and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, that house. Now, Roz made another trip to America a few years later. And this is where I want to talk about a guy named Don Casper. When she was in the U.S. the first time, she met Don when she was out on the West Coast. He had only known her from writing letters until she was in the States. And so he kind of expected her to be, quote, a dour English blue stocking, but was pleasantly surprised when she was, quote, an attractive, vivacious young woman. 
Was he a scientist? Mm-hmm. Okay. When he met her the first time, he hailed her from across the distance between them by yelling, hey, Roz. And he was so disarmingly charming that she, quote, let him get away with it. Because, like, she was a pretty formal person, mm. you know, but he was just cute about it. He was surprised to hear that there were people she didn't get along with because the two of them got along really well. And he thought she was great. Their work meshed, their personalities meshed, their goals meshed. They published companion journal articles and everything, which is so cute. So on her second trip, they were going to hang out while she was at Berkeley. And then she'd go, like, she was going to go be at Berkeley. And then they were going to hang out at Don's house in Colorado during the summer. Okay. Ross turned 36 years Wait, old. just the two of them were going to hang out at his house? Well, hold on. So Ross turned 36 years old on this trip. And Don was almost a decade younger. What? So, yeah, cougar, apparently, Ross. So, and Ross and Don did spend time together on this trip. And while their relationship never really went beyond a deep and close friendship, Roz mm-hmm. indicated that of every man she knew, Don was one she could have loved and even married. So why didn't she? Don't know. Hmm. It just never worked out. Don ended up being happily married to someone else, but everyone <laughs> close to both of them indicated that they were that they were in love. Hmm. So now his mother did get sick while they were on this trip, which affected their ability to spend time together. So were they alone in Colorado? No, because he was taking care of his sick mom. So that, you know, which I don't think affected any like romantic aspirations either of them had, but you know, it was a factor about a great time in his life or it was, he had a lot going on to be fair. Yeah. Okay. Either way, her trip went well. And aside from a weird attack of severe stomach pain, she had a great time. But those stomach pains were not an anomaly and would need to be dealt with ASAP. Mm. When Roz got back from this trip, she went to see her doctor. She had gained weight, which was unusual for her, and the stomach pains weren't going away. And her doc was like, as doctors are, are you pregnant? You look pregnant. Because women's health care is trash. And Roz was like, I have a rash and there is a spike through my temple. Cool. When was your last period? That's literally what would happen. Okay. So. So Roz was like, I I mean, I wish. I think it's actually something pretty serious. So doctors examined her and found a mass near her pelvis, which was perhaps an ovarian cyst. So she was admitted to the hospital for surgery, and the news was, was not good. She had two tumors, one on her right ovary the size of a croquet ball. Oh. And another on the left ovary the size of a tennis ball, so slightly smaller. The official diagnosis was ovarian cancer, and it was 1956. Mm. Not exactly a time when cancer treatments were reliably effective. Right. She had a full hysterectomy, wherein they removed her uterus and her ovaries, which should have taken care of the cancer. She recovered at friends' houses because, like, she would stay at her mom's house, but when she stayed there, Muriel's constant worrying and weeping kind of really Mm. kind of got on Roz's nerves, kind of grated on her, and made it hard for her to actually feel better. She felt like she was simply too busy with her work to die anyway. So she just kept on working, but the cancer the cancer didn't stay away. Oh. She was admitted to the Royal Marsden Hospital where they specialized in cancer treatment. She was one of the first to get chemotherapy, oh. Oh. which was designed to keep the disease from advancing while they found a cure. 
spoiler, we're still waiting almost 70 years later. Mm -hmm. Chemo is still our best shot at slowing it down until we find a cure, but we're going to find one. So, but I mean, clearly they didn't find a cure and the cancer spread. So Roz was finally hospitalized. Where did it start the next time though? Everywhere. Oh, oh. Yeah. So like Roz was finally like, she was finally hospitalized in the spring of 1958 for the last time. And she died on April 16th, 1958 from pneumonia brought Mm -hmm. on by the cancer. So Mm -hmm. nowadays we might make cause of death like we would mark it as cancer back then it was whatever disease they got because they had cancer so i think that's still true today though people die from like infections related to like well, their it is it is pretty common stuff, it so, is pretty like, common but yes but i but no, i still they, think those aren't technically i mean i mean yes it's kind of because but i think even today those wouldn't officially be like cancer death today we're more likely to say that cancer was the cause of death than they were back then is what i'm saying so Roz was buried in the family plot and was mourned by both her large family and a community of scientists who that had known of her and her work so people were sad when she died so she couldn't have been a total psychopath and a shrew which is how she will be characterized by some colleagues later in as we talk about it later but that's what I've got for you on Roz's life now. Okay. So I had to like, I had to like chop up my bio a bit because there's a whole bunch of science work going on, you know, filtering through her life. So why don't we take a break and then you can give us a crash course on x-ray crystallography. Woo. Get excited. Or get I'm excited. It's going to be great. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. As I said, I mentioned a couple of topics that I kind of had to leave alone and we need to spend a little bit more time with them as it relates to Roz and her science and all that. So, Brenna, what have you got for us today? Okay, you guys, buckle up. I'm going to really dive into crystallography, x-ray diffraction, etc. Um, so we can understand some of Roz's earlier work, and then, like, of course, we'll be discuss it, discussing some of her most famous work. Sure. Um, I'd love to tell you I'm an expert on this topic, seeing as I literally took a graduate level course on x-ray crystallography have actually like participated in setting up a crystal 
four analysis and like went through that whole process of determining the structure and whatever. But literally what I told you is about what I remember from that class. Love that. So, I mean, I truthfully, we'll get to this, but today, like a lot of it is, um, you let a computer do a lot of the work. So anyway, let's start out. I'm going to actually read an excerpt from my Introduction to Crystallography book, textbook from grad school by Donald E. Sands. Oh, nice. Crystallography is concerned with the structure and the properties of the crystalline state. Crystals have been the subject of study and speculation for hundreds of years, and everyone has some familiarity with their properties. So we know Linus Pauling loved them. Yeah, we did talk a bit about X-ray crystallography a long time ago, all the way back in season one, Mm -hmm. when we talked about him. He was really good. He was really adept at crystallography but if we're talking inorganic compounds like sodium chloride it's easier to obtain good quality crystals there's a period um, periodicity to them unit cells symmetry Hmm. all that kind of stuff okay Um, so basically up until this period in biochemistry molecular biology Mm -hmm. when Roz is doing her thing Mm -hmm. in the 50s Nobody had successfully used X-ray diffraction to determine the structure of a biomolecule. We'll talk, we'll kind of unpack that, but interestingly, DNA and the first protein structure were presented in the same year in 1953. Because guys, if you don't, spoiler alert, where we're heading, if you don't know who Rosalind Franklin is, like she came up with like DNA as a double helix, right? Okay. Right. But the first protein structure was also presented the same year. Although it might have been 1958. I don't know. Sources couldn't agree when the structure of myoglobin was actually determined with X-ray diffraction. But anyway, it's all well, there was a lot of shady stuff going on with well, maybe that's what part of it. This I don't time. know. That's part of it. We'll yeah. talk about that in our brawl. So even if you have listened to us since the beginning or you've been just since discovering us, whatever, um, and you've heard us talk about x-ray crystallography it, it's been a while so I will back up talk a little bit about the technique and then I'll kind of go from there okay, okay so there was a guy named Wilhelm Röntgen he discovered x-rays in 1895 is he the guy that made his wife like take a picture and she said I saw my own death that yes that, that's, yeah. okay. that's the one yeah okay <laughs> which is you know she's like seeing her skeleton hand <laughs> he's like and, hey honey isn't this great she's like well uh, now I'm gonna die great I don't think it's great um but even so that was 1895 but even up until 1912 nobody was quite sure if they were waves are they particles what do we do with them and in 19 even up until 1912 there wasn't any direct evidence for the structure of crystals um it's, I don't know I guess it's kind of complicated there was a guy named Max von Laue and he came along at the University of Munich. He gave a lecture where he reported that his colleagues, Volter Friedrich and Paul Nipping, observed the diffraction of x-rays by a crystal of zinc sulfide, which is, again, an inorganic mineral. Okay. okay. But the diffraction proved that the x-rays were waves, which then gave others studying x-rays more information to work with going forward. Because... If you're, if you're studying things behaving as waves versus particles, like, right, there's behavior that goes with those things. And so right, you have to understand if it's diffraction is waves. Anyway, um, so if you maybe at some point in your educational career, you might have done an experiment where you like shine a light through gratings, right? Mm-hmm. And like the light gets diffracted based on like slit width and position and all that, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe like you've used a diffraction grading where a visible light enters and then you see a rainbow because it's diffracting all the, you know, yeah. 
colors sure. out from like white light, which is all the colors. Right. Okay. So it's the same idea like that we talk about if you're looking at like light diffraction, same thing with x-ray diffraction. Okay. 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 So there were the Braggs who were the father-son duo. Um, they were super excited about this. So they go all in on studying x-rays some more and they realize that the geometry of the process of x-ray diffraction is analogous to light reflection by a plane mirror. Okay. Right. Why does that matter? I don't know. It tells us, yeah, okay, okay, it's a great question. <laughs> uh, it tells us about the crystal because the x-ray beams go in at an angle and then they come back out and hit, let's say, film, okay? Mm -hmm. Then you can calculate information about the arrangement of the atoms in that crystal. Okay. Like based on like, right, if something, if it's diffracted, like it, it's hitting something to make mm -hmm. it diffract, right? So based on how where it diffracts onto the film, then you can like back calculate like where mm -hmm. the arrangement, like the atoms in that actual crystal were. Okay. Yeah, sure. We get Bragg's, if you've ever heard of Bragg's law, mm -hmm. that's where like it, this that's comes from. Guys. Okay. And I'm not getting bogged down in the math because look guys, like I'm already irritated that I'm having to do the science on this. So we're going to cover know. the Bragg's at some point, And I think I flagged myself to do their science because Fantastic. It's, mostly, it's mostly math. Yeah. It's math. Okay. Um, and today we do have all kinds of algorithms, programs and all that to take in x-ray diffraction data, mm -hmm. analyze it, compare it to bazillion crystal structures in libraries. And then it's like, hey, it's probably like this based on all those calculations. Like no one has to sit there like by hand be like, okay, now it goes here and it goes here. Like we just, you know, you basically just collect as you do the, the, crystallography you just collect that information that goes straight into a processor oh okay for you. like it just it just takes everything in right like we don't if you in the old days they would actually have like film paper mm -hmm. surrounding this thing and they okay. like actually look at the spots on the film we don't do that anymore we just go collect the the data from the instrument and move on and the database tells us what it is. Okay. And yeah, and everything that's already there is like, oh, it probably looks like this and it matches this and da, 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 and whatever. And there's a lot more to it. I'm really super oversimplifying, but that's what we have to do with this subject. Yes. Yeah. So Bragg's work made huge, well, the Bragg's work made huge advances in utilizing x-rays in this way in terms of like determining structure, crystal structure. And then, as we said, Linus Pauling, who didn't discover anything new, he just made important advances with x-ray crystallography mm -hmm. before he turned towards other types of science, right? He was, right. again, he, but he was studying those mineral type compounds as well. Mm -hmm. um, but he, again, he was really good at that, you know, oh, it diffract. this is the diffraction pattern and how do I calculate and where does, where are these atoms? And like, he was just good at kind of determining those structures before we had, you know, computers to do everything for us. Right. Okay, so how do we actually do x-ray crystallography, okay? First, you need something that's very important. You need a really good crystal. Easier said than done for organic or biomolecules, okay? Again, salts are, inorganic salts are, again, there's there's a there's a symmetry. There's there's all kinds of things like point groups and all sorts of things. I can things, see it, like, like it's a little salt crystal. Like, I'm sure. Right, like, right, you've, seen, it's, you've probably that. seen a picture of, like, sodium and chloride ions, like, in their lattice, right? Like a crystal lattice. You've yes. heard those kinds of things, right? So that's how they arrange because it's ion an ionic thing and whatever. Right. Well, uh, there were even a few times in grad school when like I'd made something and my advisor really wanted to analyze it using crystallography, but just my samples 
were not good enough for mm-hmm. our crystallographer to actually collect data from. Like he would try and he'd like, I tried to get something and I, I couldn't. Okay. okay. Um, so you do, I mean, the computer can do a lot of work, but you do still need somebody who understands crystallography because they do have to be able to kind of assess what's going on as the com- the instrument, the computer kind of try to figure it out. Okay. And if the person can't figure it out, then it's, it's just, you don't have enough to go on. Okay. Okay. And recrystallization in and of itself can be challenging. Like there are ways you can tinker with how the crystals reform. Basically organic molecules are just trickier to get nice uniform crystals. We do labs in my organic chemistry courses where they have to recrystallize their compounds because you remove impurities by doing that. Mm -hmm. But you also can then try to get nice larger like depending on how slow you change you like you could heat it up and then you cool it down and there's different solvents and there's a lot of different things you can do basically to affect how nice those crystals look okay is it like when you have gemstones like rubies and if you heat the rubies or cook them it can change their crystal structure and you'll have less impurities and flaws and that kind of thing is that that same kind of idea I don't think it I mean maybe but it, it's just like the size like if you have like a lot of organic compounds are just like these nice little powders right like that you mm-hmm. can't well okay there there is powder diffraction now but we're not going there but like this time like you need a a piece a chunk of material that you can set up to shoot this thing through okay so gotcha. it's just easier like if you think about like if you're if your salt gets wet, right, in the bottom of your salt shaker, it just forms this big old clump, like a big old crystal, right? Organic compounds don't do that as much. Yeah. Um, okay. And a lot of organic compounds tend, like, I made a lot of things that were kind of like borderline solids, like they were kind of solid, but they were almost oils. Like, so you have to have something that you can actually make be a solid and stay in some kind of like organized structure. Okay. Right. Got it. Okay. So once you have said beautiful crystal that you're going to get, you aim your x-ray beam at it and the x-rays will hit the electrons in the atoms. When they hit the electrons, they scatter. The beams do, right? Not the electrons. The beams no, they, yeah. if, the, if the electrons <laughs> are scattering, we're talking about something different. And see also the last episodes of the season. Yeah. Until they hit the film or photographic paper or whatever you have like behind the crystal. Okay. Right. In a very primitive form of this. And then you sit there and you measure all angles and sizes and intensities of the spots on your photographic paper that the x-rays left. That sounds really tedious. But you can't just like pick one angle, hit the crystal, get some data and move on. No, 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 no. You have to rotate the crystal slowly up to like 180 or 200 degrees or more. And you have to do it so slowly so that you can get hundreds of angles over the course of that rotation. I'd rather not. So that at every little incremental angle turn, you get more scattering. And then you have to make sense of all those little, yeah. See, if I've got, so if it's me, am I reading star spectra or am I reading X-ray diffraction? I'd rather do the star spectra. I mean, this, yeah, I don't, Sounds again, today at like, from my very basic understanding of like the one time we ran a crystal in my x-ray crystallography class and kind of like ran it through 
if it's something that's known, it's a lot easier to find it in the system. If it's not known, then somebody who is actually an expert does still have to do so. Like, it's not that the, the computer will just spit everything back out. Like, you still do have to know how to work with uh, crystallography data. It's just the computer does simplify a lot more of it, right? Versus like photographic film paper that you're sitting there and just. Because you have like hundreds of sets of data basically to sit and deal with. And sometimes you got blurry images or whatever. And so like, then what do you do with that? How do you analyze that? Okay. So you have bazillions of these little spots all over the place from all your diffraction angles. And then you do all that complex math to get to a 3D picture of where those electrons are and like the density of where they are, which then in turn allows you to back out from like where the electrons are to like, here's where the atom is and the structure and whatever. And then you'll have your bond lengths and angles and all that good stuff. Like today, we kind of know like, okay, like a typical carbon-carbon bond length is this many angstroms and a carbon-hydrogen is this many angstroms. Sure. But like, I don't know how that, to be honest, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know how, uh, how much that was known. Probably not much because, uh, again, organic molecules and crystallography are pretty much not a thing at this point um because like now we can tell you like oh it's this many angstroms we would expect this many angstroms between the carbon and nitrogen bond and whatever now we have that information but you know they wouldn't have had that at the time okay true okay so math lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of math okay yeah the crystallography is not for the faint of heart no clearly today even today like if you told me i had to like go actually like mm -mm, no thank you no, thank you. No, this would not be my jam. Mm-mm. Too difficult. No, thank you. No. Okay, so now lucky for us and everyone in science, guess who became superb with x-ray crystallography? Is it Roz? It's Roz. Yeah. She started studying the basics of x-ray crystallography, as Maggie mentioned, and she would have had to learn things like unit cells and point groups and symmetry and space groups and all the things that go along with like traditional like minerals being analyzed mm-hmm. with extra crystallography okay she became respected for her scientific work and after attending a talk that she gave she got that job as a physical chemist using x-ray diffraction techniques to analyze coal charcoal and graphite mm-hmm. and she was very good at it she spent four years working on it um, as you mentioned okay but let's talk about coal for a minute okay coal and charcoal graphite like if you know anything about that what what uh molecules what atoms i mean make carbon up. carbon yeah so coal isn't a uniform crystalline structure it's i mean you've seen coal you've seen charcoal mm-hmm. like we wouldn't call that crystalline okay no um and so it's the carbon compound and it's actually amorphous coal is amorphous where mm-hmm. um it's basically going to be a lot trickier to work with um and get x-ray diffraction data because it's amorphous, because it is not an actual crystalline structure, which is a lot of organic compounds, mm. they're kind of amorphous. They might look like a solid. I mean, I don't disagree that charcoal is a, a solid material in your hands. Yes. But in terms of the arrangement and space that those atoms make, it doesn't just necessarily lock into just this one thing. Like okay. a diamond. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's just going to be a lot harder to work with that to get your x-ray diffraction data that's, I mean, easy to interpret. I don't think any of it's easy to interpret, but certainly it's going to be much more difficult than something that's a crystalline, an actual true crystalline structure. Right. So she studied under 
someone, I guess maybe this is Jacques, who taught her all about applying X-ray diffraction to amorphous materials and how to interpret that data. So she got really good at this. Um, And she actually contributed huge amounts of knowledge to the field and was able to use X-ray diffraction to help understand how the charcoal would absorb water, chemicals, et cetera. Because carbon materials are full of pores that can absorb but different arrangement of those carbon atoms make the material behave differently. Like if you want to use charcoal, let's say in a gas mask to absorb harmful vapors, yeah. you have to use the right kind. I mentioned that because I spent several years using gas masks and, and learning about them. But well, if you have a face wash with activated charcoal in it, it is not this, you can't just go rub charcoal briquettes on your face and get the same result. Like yeah. it is a different kind of charcoal that is designed to do a thing. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Right. And they, those pores absorb. That's why activated charcoal is like a popular thing because yeah. it's supposed to take all those organic, it's supposed to attract um, all those organic things mm-hmm. from your skin into its pores. And it's mm-hmm. got like the surface area is like a stupidly high number compared to its size because of all the pores and stuff. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So, and so it That's makes like it makes super... chemical besties and it washes off your face. So use activated charcoal guys. It's sure. good. Sure. Super besides the point, but all of that just tells us that she was like primed for research with biomolecules, which also don't necessarily behave the way inorganic molecules do. Again, I mentioned organic compounds, biomolecules or organic compounds tend to have more of an amorphous structure. It is harder to get those crystals, like the perfect crystals uh, sample that you need to do good crystallography with. Okay. All right. So Roz is at King's College London now. Okay. So we're just like zipping right through time. And she's working on the DNA project. She was originally supposed to come in and do proteins. I think we'll get to all of that drama. I'm dealing with all of that drama. Cool. Yeah. She's going to be working with a guy named Morris Wilkins and some other people. And what they are trying to do is actually get good samples of crystallized DNA to study using X-ray diffraction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just getting good crystallized DNA was in and of itself a process. Okay. But what ends up happening is that the group working on this, Roz included, finds that the data they are getting varies with humidity. And I just want to use, this is a quote from um, Morris Wilkins' autobiography, actually, to explain. Okay. Okay. So Rosalind had discovered, this is his quote, Rosalind had discovered a somewhat different type of X-ray diffraction pattern when the DNA was very wet, about 92% humidity. She showed me the new pattern, which we called B-DNA, which was similar to, but much clearer than those we had made before. B-DNA looked set to lend itself to fruitful analysis. Mm -hmm. The DNA that gave the crystalline pattern, which we now call call A-DNA, was not as wet as Raymond and I had thought. The humidity was only 75%. Clearly, Rosalind said, the DNA molecules could exist in two different structures and changing the humidity from 75% to 92% caused the structure to change from A to B. Mm -hmm. It was clearly an important discovery. The full importance of Rosalind's improved pattern was only recognizable after we had the fully crystalline pattern. It was a pity that Rosalind and I did not spend more time discussing the importance of her discovery and what it might tell us about the nature of DNA. And this is Morris. Her cool air of cool superiority, superiority, a look I have never forgotten, temporarily undermined my self-confidence and gave me a brief feeling of panic. It was an extraordinary experience. More on a lot of that later. That's just like a little 
fore foretaste of what's to come because like gag me gag me right now this man this man see and i because i read morris's autobiography i have a very different anyway because you, that you read his autobiography he can say whatever he wants to say i got facts over here mm, we'll see okay all right we'll see we'll see what we will see maybe we'll actually mo was and honestly mo was not the problem right I can, yeah, I, okay in his if i'm going to just defend him here really quick guys if you haven't figured out where we're heading with this in the next episode like are you living under a rock anyway he also is not a fan of the one autobiography that i chose i specifically did not read because it's trash so and and that's the same one that i call out as being the worst okay, cool. and so we so we'll agree on uh, at least one person in this story Oh, there is one person that was constantly the problem, and it wasn't Mo, or nor was it Roz. Yeah, no. Okay, okay. So I do, the- I do go into the differences between A DNA and B DNA yeah, because yeah, it, yeah. it's part of part of what happens. Sure. Um. So Roz was diligently working here, though, to produce a clear X-ray diffraction pattern in order to determine the structure of DNA. It's a lot of trial and error, just even with the humidity. Okay. I read that quote because, I mean, and you'll get into it, but again, if you're trying to take in something that tends to not have like a, a structure all the time that is the structure, and if things like humidity can change it, things like water content affect how it crystallizes, like it just, it makes it difficult to figure out what's going on. Well, having the proper water content and understanding those differences right. caused a huge setback in the discovery right. of the structure. So it's a really right. big deal. Yeah. But in 1952, Ra set up an experiment where she bundled, quote, 20 or more snot-like DNA fibers together at the end of a tiny capillary tube, no easy task, realigned the heavy camera for many hundreds of angles and exposure shots, and endured at least 100 hours of high radiation exposure. Is that what she had cancer? I, nowhere did I read that there was a correlation there. I'm making the correlation right now. I'm not a doctor. Maybe this is a hot take. All of the radiation that she was exposed to had to make. Now, she had a genetic predisposition to the kind of cancer she had because of her okay. Jewish ancestry and some oh. of the genetics in that that they've discovered since. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it was exacerbated by her exposure to radiation because she was exposed to a phenomenal amount of radiation. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So anyway, the result of this, this 100 hours of high mm-hmm. radiation, which supposedly she had an assistant, but like from what I could tell she was kind of there for most of it but the result was a famous picture that we know at well if you know about this uh we know it is photograph number 51 photo 51 photo 51 based on this photograph the helical nature of dna was determined uh which is arguably one of the most famous scientific i mean has to be one of your top famous scientific discoveries whether or not you think it was important or i mean it was too but just in terms of everyone knows like oh dna is a helix double helix and whatever like it was like you know so Roz went on to do more work beyond dna like guys we're gonna unpack this whole like it's not just like Roz was like hey guys dna is a double helix yay and we all like lived happily double helix i'm gonna go work at birkbeck bye that's not what that's not that's not how this went down. So I, I, we are still kind of skipping part of the story, even now. The juicy um, part. Yeah, like the, 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 
the meat of the whole thing. Um, but this kind of sets us up in terms of what she was doing and kind of her expertise and her role and everything. But um, she did go on to work beyond DNA crystallography. She became interested in studying plant virus, m- most notably the tobacco mosaic virus. Mm-hmm. TMV became like a bit like a lot of people started working on that after yeah. DNA too. That was like another big like popular thing. But I saw she was, quote, working with the team that included future Nobelist Aaron Klug, Franklin made meticulous x-ray diffraction photos of the viruses. Her analyses of the diffraction patterns revealed, among other things, that TMV's genetic material, RNA, was embedded in the inner wall of its protective protein shell. So she has some other, and I'm not, guys, to be honest, like I was kind of done after the x-ray crystallography and the DNA thing. Sure. So I'm not going to get too much into it, no. but um, she, she actually, I mean, it's not like photo 51 is like the only thing she ever did for science kind of thing. Right. She did a lot of things. She did a lot of things. So I just want to mention that she did go on to continue saying, but um, that, I mean, photo 51 was 1952. When did you say she died? 1958? So, I mean, she, she continued to work, but again, she was sick a lot of the time she had to recover. Um, so her work became somewhat hindered in terms of, you know, time that she had available, but can you imagine though, like if she had had more time, like how much she would have got accomplished? Like 10 more years from her would have been unbelievable. Unbelievable. I know. And even you think like, well, if she had lived to be, to hit like the seventies, the eighties, like the, like. I don't know. She could have, if she lived into the night, like she would have seen the beginnings, like the human genome project, like it would have blown her mind. Like it would have been amazing. She would have probably worked on the human genome project. She she probably would have been like the groundbreaking person, like doing this stuff. Yeah. We, we, I would contend that we would have had DNA analysis and forensics sooner had she lived longer. Maybe. That's my contention. She was very good um, at what she did. Uh, So yeah, that's kind of where I want to leave it today kind of I think sets us up puts us in a good we're on a good place grammatically ecumenically ecumenically. (laughs) yeah all right well let's take a quick break and then we're not really talk a lot of legacy but we do have some more setting up to do for for the brawl so so let's take a break and then we'll talk about what we've got coming next we will definitely be discussing Raz's legacy more in the next couple of episodes. Is there anything we want to cover on her today or should we just kind of start setting up what we've got coming? Because because we've already kind of said we've, we've got yeah. a two episode brawl for y'all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, it's weird. I didn't have to, I don't have a teaser or anything because we're kind of just, you know, if if you're sitting here going, hmm, I feel like, Rosalind Franklin is not the name that I always hear associated with the helical nature of DNA. You would be right. You would be correct. Uh, whether that's good or bad uh, is not really up for debate. It's that da- it's it's definitely not good. But um, we're gonna kind of get into this whole. I mean, again, it's not like Ros was just like, oh, here's photo fifty one, and guess what? It's a double helix. Hooray! And the, and whole the scientific, scientific community, community said. Rejoiced this is great and that yeah. was the end That's no not, it was there was not how this theft went out. and subterfuge and lies and reputation ruining and yeah all sorts of things yeah um so we're gonna bring in kind of all the other big players in this saga 
Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a two-parter brawl because we got to first just talk about the people because you know how we like to give you all the background information, but we got several people to cover. We have three Uh, new people to add in. Three new people to add in in addition to Roz. And then we have to unpack the whatever it was that really went down. Right. And then get into how we feel about it because maybe, again, maybe we'll brawl about how we think this all went down. Maybe, maybe you and I will, because by the end of most of our brawls, you and I usually reach a consensus about, you know, but I don't, you're making me nervous this time. But it'll put into perspective, like the fact that what you read and whose sources you read about different things can really affect maybe your view on it. Especially because Miss Roz, we already know, died well before any of these other people died. And died so early that she wasn't even part of the Nobel Prize for this work because they don't give them posthumously, which in this, I make a very strong case in one of my segments that that's ridiculous and it should, she should have been an exception. But anyway. Oh, okay. But if you do that, like I could think of other people that should then have probably had the Nobel Prize posthumously. Well, I, not I think it on makes it own. too complicated, and they like to bring you there, and you have to like give a speech and stuff. Like you can't I don't think do that if you're dead. It shouldn't have been on her <laughs> own, since there were already four of them that were getting this award. Well, three of them that were getting this award. Yeah. One other person, because of her work, honoring her posthumously in this way, I think would have been appropriate. You can't just go start naming dead people to get the award. That's obviously you can't win a single award posthumously. That's ridiculous. But like, anyway, see. But didn't that guys. happen with one of uh, Marie Curie's things? Like Pierre had already died, but like he probably had done a lot of the work, but they didn't give him a. I don't think that was right either. All right. Well, I just feel like the Nobel people can do whatever they want. They certainly can. And I can also have my opinion about it. And this is right. what I think, Mr. and Mrs. Nobel or whoever you are. I'm kidding. I know who it was named for. We'll actually be covering the guy that it was named for, I think, in a. Yeah, we should. At some think... point, we need to. I think. We might have mentioned him. Made dynamite. So we're definitely talking about him. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about him. Yeah. So, so yeah. So we have two weeks. Next week is going to be an episode focused on the players in the brawl because there are three more that we're adding in. So that will be what Brenna Gibbs covers uh, for you. Mm-hmm. And then the week after that, we are going to be discussing, I will what tell you, I'm going to, I'm also going to go into the science of mm-hmm the double helix structure um, and the nature of that and why it's important and Mm. and how it works and all of that. And I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Now Maggie gets to talk about biochemistry. Good luck. I I do. Hey, well, and I did run a couple things by you when I was writing my segment because I just wanted to make sure I was saying it right because I am not a biochemist. I'm, I'm not even, but okay. You're more of a biochemist than I am. All right. I don't even have chemist in my degree. So, you know, fair enough. Um, but I feel pretty good about it because I am not a high level at it. I'm going to be able to explain it also not at a high level. So we're all going to be on the same page about it. And then we're going to get into the absolute nonsense of the brawl, the mudslinging and, and all. That. Yeah. And guys, you're going to have two weeks off without any punny teasers. I know, I know you're feeling really sad about that. Oh, no, I feel sad about it. I'm sure you do. I didn't have you one can think of some puns to add in if you want. <laughs> you always do. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I was as inspired. That's, fair. That's okay. I'll make up for it throughout the season. I'll I'll get some other good puns in. I'm sure you will. Don't worry about it. 
Do you want to talk about sources that you use today? Uh, yeah, sure. I read something called The Birth of X-ray Crystallography in Nature. I read Morris Wilkins, The Third Man of the Double Helix and Autobiography by Morris Wilkins. Introduction to Crystallography was that uh, lovely textbook quote I read by Donald E. Sands, The Secret of Life by Howard Markle. That's a big one. That'll be a yeah. big source, I think, for us for pretty much these ne- these all three episodes, this one and the next two. Yeah. I did look very briefly at the specular reflection of x-rays, which is the nature paper published in 1912 by William Bragg. So well, yeah, that's kind of all I have. I got a lot of stuff from The Secret of Life. That was... Yeah, The Secret of Life by Howard Markle. It's a good... I feel like I didn't read it in its entirety because I did have to start skimming at some point because it was way too much to put in my brain to, like, write these episodes. But I think if, like, after all these episodes, you're like, man, I just want... I want something. Like, like The Secret of Life by Howard Markle, which was published in 2021, is, like, a good storytelling way to kind of present the whole thing. You know yes. what I mean? It was so. a really good amalgamation of a lot of sources and it was science, but bi- biographies, yes. but it's not as in depth on anything. So it's kind of a, I don't yeah. know, it's but very... it'll be more in depth than what we do. So, you know. yeah, it's a, it's a very accessible book though. It wasn't yeah. too in the weeds about anything. And it, and it, yeah. I think it, I think it actually gave a really fair picture of what went down and how it all shook out and the repercussions, which were actually not bad in this case, but there were, I mean, there were repercussions to some of the choices that were made. So though, I really recommend that one. The Secret of Life by Howard Markle was really good. I also read Rosalind Franklin, The Dark Lady of DNA by Brenda Maddox. That's a a really good biography. Um, There's information in there that is from one of her besties. And some people say that her bestie was wrong about it. And so there's some debate about some of the stuff so I kind of left a little bit of that out and tried to focus on the the stuff that kind of everybody agreed on okay now I do want to mention there's another couple of books that I don't want to mention because uh, it has it'll tell you too much about what we've got going on in the next couple episodes Mm, but okay and this was not a source but there is a book called Her Hidden Genius by Marie Benedict and Mm. it's it's not factual it is a novel Historical fiction novel. it is a novel adaptation is what she called it a novel adaptation of Rosalind's story hmm. so if you are into more of a fictionalized view because there's characters in it and then and then he said this and then I said this and then she said this mm-hmm. we don't have those conversations right. written down so it's based on lots and lots and lots of research and firsthand sources and letters and interviews and all that kind of thing so it's not a nonfiction book, but it does tell this story and it focuses on the conflict that Roz had with uh, Mo Wilkins at King College, which we're going to get into next week as well in the next couple of weeks. So, um, but it's, it was good. Uh, it was just an interesting book and it was, I didn't read it. I skimmed, oh. I skimmed it just to kind of see, to kind of get a flavor Skim and not um, okay we're not friends anymore i mean i I have to be related to you it's just apparently bad enough because you can't just skim a historical fiction novel from the person who repeatedly drags math in every episode we do what kind of philistine just skims a novel so you skim nonfiction, fine 
don't skim a fiction But I book. didn't have time. Be- I did not have time to read this book because I was, again, fire hose of information about Roz. You can look over your glasses at me all you want, but I'm telling you. But I do I recommend know. it. Based on what I read, I, I do recommend I read, Marie Benedict has re- written a lot of books similar to this. She has mm-hmm. a book about Hedy Lamarr. Mm-hmm. She has a book called The Other Einstein, which is about um, Albert Einstein's first wife. Very mm-hmm. specific set period of time for the most part from that. Mm-hmm. I just actually read The Other Einstein. It was interesting because, I mean, she didn't pull any punches about some of Al's BS that he pulled. Because if you recall, he had like a list of conditions for continuing to be his wife and oh i recall he and then he married his cousin and it was well and just a lot of things so but it's mm-hmm. from his um, first wife's perspective and stuff anyway but i did just read it. it's good she has another one on um uh clementine churchill so just, oh. a lot of them but anyway if you read one of them and like that kind of thing this is definitely here. this is definitely one for you then because it's yeah yeah it's interesting so yeah, those those so those were those are what I've got for this week's. So a lot of these sources are going to bleed over into the next, as we said, next couple of episodes. So, but I think that's all I've got for today. Okay, you have anything else? All right, then until next time, live dangerously, do science. <laughs>